Book Two, Chapter Two of The Four Stragglers by Frank L. Packard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Voice in the Night. Captain Francis Newcomb, from the dock where he had been making fast a line, surveyed for a moment the deck of the Talofa below. His eyes rested speculatively on Howard Locke, who, with sleeves rolled up and grimy to the elbows, was busy over the yacht's engine. Then his glance passed to Runnels on the forward deck of the little vessel, who was assiduously engaged in making shipshape coils of a number of truant ropes. Captain Francis Newcomb permitted a flicker to cross his lips. It was a new experience for Runnels, this playing at sailor-man, and Runnels had earned ungrudging praise from Locke all the way down from New York. Runnels had taken to the job even as a child takes to a new toy. Well, so much the better. Runnels and Locke had hit it off together from the start. Again, so much the better. He lit a cigarette and stared shoreward along the dock. Manwa Island. Well, in the moonlight at least, it was a place of astounding beauty. And if its appearance was any criterion of its material worth, it was a... He laughed softly, and languidly exhaled a cloud of cigarette smoke. There was a lure about the place, or was it the moonlight that, stealing with dreamy treachery upon the senses, carried one away to a land of make-believe? That stretch of sand there, like a girdle between sea and shore, as fleecy as driven snow. The restless shimmer of the moonbeams on the water, like the play of clustered diamonds in a platinum setting. The trees and open spaces etched against myriad stars the smell of semi-tropical growing things, just pure fragrance that made the nostrils greedy with insatiable desire. He drew his hand suddenly across his eyes. "'What a night!' he exclaimed aloud. "'It's like the eyes and the lips of a dream-woman, like a goblet of wine of the vintage of gods. No song of the sirens could compare with this. I'm going ashore, Locke. What do you say?' Locke looked up with a grunt, as he swabbed his arms with a piece of waste. "'I'm done in with this damned engine,' he said irritably. "'It's too late to go ashore. They'll all be asleep.' "'I'm not going to ring the doorbell,' said Captain Francis Newcomb pleasantly. "'I'm simply going to stroll in paradise. You don't mind, do you?' "'Go to it,' said Locke. "'I'm going to bed.' "'Right,' said Captain Francis Newcomb. He turned and walked shoreward along the dock. Over his shoulder he saw Runnels pause in the act of coiling rope to stare after him. And again an ironical little flicker crossed his lips. Runnels was no doubt prompted to call out and ask what this midnight excursion was all about. But Runnels in the eyes of Howard Locke was a valet, and Runnels must therefore be dumb. Runnels on occasions knew his place. He nodded in a sort of self-commendatory fashion to himself, as, reaching the shore, he started forward along a roadway that opened through the trees. He was well satisfied with his decision to bring Runnels along on the trip. Captain Francis Newcomb and man looked well, sounded well, and was well, since Runnels, for once in his life, even though it was due to no moral regeneration on the part of Runnels, but due entirely to Runnels' belief that he was on an innocent holiday, could be made exceedingly useful in bolstering up his master's social standing, without bagging any of the game. Blessed is he who expects little. 
murmured Captain Francis Newcomb softly to himself, for he shall receive still less. He paused abruptly, and stared ahead of him. Curious road, this, like a great archway of trees, and all moon-flecked underfoot. Where did it lead? To the house, probably. This was Manwa Island, the home of the mad millionaire. Queer freak of nature, these Florida Keys, if what he had been able to read up about them was true. Almost a continuous bow of islands, some fruitful, some barren, some big, some small. Such a heterogeneous mess, stretching along off the coast, some near, some far, for two hundred miles. Nothing but rocks on one, tropical fruits and verdure in profusion on another. Well, the mad millionaire, if the night revealed anything, had picked the gem of them all. He walked on again. The road wound tortuously through what appeared to be a glade of great extent. It seemed to beckon, to lure, to intrigue him the farther he went, to promise something around each moon-flecked turning. He laughed aloud softly. Promised what? Where was he going? Why was he here ashore at all? Was it possible that he had no ulterior motive in this stroll, that for once the sheer beauty of anything held him in thrall? Well, even so, it at least afforded him a laugh at himself then. This road, for instance, was like an enchanted pathway, and there was magic in the night. Or was it Polly? Captain Francis Newcomb shook his head. Hardly, not at this hour. Thanks to the engine trouble that had delayed them, she would long since have given up expecting him to-night, even though he had written her that he would be here. The house, then, a surreptitious inspection, an entry even? There were half a million dollars there. Again he shook his head. He was not so great a fool as to invite disaster. Tomorrow, and for days thereafter, he would be an inmate of the house, when he would have opportunities of that nature without number, and without entailing any risk or suspicion, and time was no object. He smiled complacently to himself. Things were shaping up very well, very well indeed. The seed so carefully planted years ago was to bear fruit at last. The greatest coup of his life was just within his grasp, and, if he were not utterly astray, that very coup in itself should prove but the stepping-stone to still greater ones. Polly! Yes, quite true. The future depended very materially upon Polly. How amenable would she be to influence, granting always that the said influence be delicately and tactfully enough applied. He fell to whistling very softly under his breath. He had plans for Polly, and if they matured, the future looked very bright for himself. He wondered what she was like, particularly as to character and disposition. Was she affectionate, romantic, what? A great deal, a very great deal, depended on that. Not in the present instance. Polly had fully served her purpose, in so far as a certain half-million dollars in cash was concerned, and being innocent of any connivance must remain so. But thereafter... England was an exploited field. It had become dangerous. The net there was drawing in. Oh, yes, he had all that in mind on the day he had first sent Polly to America. But only in a general way, then, while to-day it had become concrete. Locke would make a most admirable open sesame to the new land, 
if Locke married Polly. Polly, as Mrs. Locke, would step at once into a social sphere than which there was no higher, or wealthier, and, ipso facto, Captain Francis Newcomb would do likewise. And given a half million as stake money, Captain Francis Newcomb, if he knew Captain Francis Newcomb at all, would not fail in his opportunities. He had expected Polly in due course to make a place for herself in social America. That was what he had paid money for. But Howard Locke was a piece of luck. Locke conserved time. Locke opened the safety vault of possibilities immediately. He frowned suddenly. Suppose Polly did not prove amenable. Nonsense! Why shouldn't she? If the man weren't flung at her head. Locke was the kind of chap a girl ought to like, and all girls were more or less romantic, and the element of romance had just the right spice to it here. The guardian she has not seen in years, who is accompanied by a young man, who, from any standpoint, whether of looks, physique, manner, or position, would measure up to the most exacting of young ladies' ideals. And to say nothing of the magic spells that seemed to have their very home in this garden isle. A veritable wooer's bower. There would be other moonlight nights. Bah! There was nothing to it, save to put a few minor obstacles in the way of the turtle-doves. Where the devil did this road lead to? Well, no matter. It was like a tunnel, dreamy black with its walls of leaves, dreamy with its sweet-smelling odours. In itself it was well worth while. It continued to invite him, and he accepted the invitation. His thoughts roved farther afield now. Locke, the trip down on the fifty-foot Talofa, not an incident to mar the days, nothing since the night that shot had been fired on shipboard through his cabin window. His face for a moment grew dark, then cleared again. If, as through the hours thereafter, when he had sat there in the cabin, it had seemed as though the shot had come from some ghostly visitor out of the past, there was no reason now why it should bother him further. For, granting such a diagnosis as true, Locke and the Talofa had thrown even so acute a stalker as a supernatural spirit off the trail. As a matter of fact, it had probably been some maniacal or drug-crazed idiot running for the moment amuck. Tonight, with these soft whispering airs around him, and serenity and loveliness everywhere, in contrast with that night of storm, the incident did not seem so virulent a thing anyway. It seemed to be smoothed over, to be relegated definitely to where it belonged, to the realm of things ended and done with. Certainly, since that night, nothing had happened. And yet? Now his lips tightened. It was unfortunate he had not caught the man. He would have liked to have seen the other's face, to have exchanged memory with memory, and to have slammed forever shut that particular door of the bygone days, if by any chance he found he had been careless enough to have left one, in passing, ajar. He swore sharply under his breath, but the next moment shrugged his shoulders. The incident was too immeasurably far removed from Manwa Island to allow it to intrude itself upon him now. Why think of things such as that, when the very night itself here, with its languor, its beauty, and, yes, again, its magic, sought to bring to the senses the gift of delightful repose and contentment? When the... He stood suddenly still, 
and in sheer amazement rubbed his eyes. He had come to the end of the tree-arched road, and it seemed as though he gazed now on the imaginative painting of a master genius, daring, bold in its conception, exquisite in its execution. Either that, or there was magic in the night, and he had been transported bodily through enchantment into the very land of the Arabian Nights. A few yards away he faced what looked in the moonlight like a great marble balustrade, and rising above this, painted into a hue of softest white against the night, towered what might well have been a caliph's palace. It stretched away in lines unusual in their beauty and design, columns above the balustrade, little domes like minarets against the skyline, quaint latticed windows, and the effect of the whole was that of a mirage on a sea of emerald green, for, sweeping away from the balustrade, wondrous in its colour under the moonlight, was a wide expanse of lawn, level, unbroken, until the eye met again the horizon rim beyond the wall of encircling trees, a wall of inky blackness. He moved forward out onto the lawn, and as suddenly halted again, as there seemed to float into his line of vision, from around the corner of the balustrade, like some nymph of the moonlight, the slim, graceful figure of a girl in white, clinging draperies, whose clustering masses of dark hair crowned a face that in the soft light was amazingly beautiful, and he caught his breath as he gazed. And the girl, with a low cry, stood still, and then came running toward him, "'Oh, Guardy, Guardy, Guardy!' she cried. "'I knew you'd come. I knew it!' It was Polly's voice. It hadn't changed. Was the nymph Polly? She was running with both hands outstretched. He caught them in his own as she came up to him, and stared into her face almost unbelievingly. Polly! This wasn't Polly. Polly's photographs were of a very pretty girl. This girl was glorious she stirred the pulses. Damn it, she made the blood leap. She hung back now a little shyly, the colour coming and going in her face. He laughed. He meant it to be a laugh of one entirely in command, both of himself and the situation. But it sounded in his ears as a laugh forced, unnatural, a poor effort to cover a suddenly routed composure. "'And is this all the welcome I get?' he demanded. He drew her closer to him. Gad, why not take his rights? She was worth it. She held up her cheek demurely. I, I wasn't quite sure, she said coyly. One's deportment with one's guardian wasn't in the school curriculum, you know, guardy. Then I should have been more particular in my selection of the school, he said. It was strange, unaccountable. His voice seemed to rasp. He kissed her then held her off at arm's length. Polly! This bewitching creature was Polly. How the colour came and fled, and something glistened in the great dark eyes, like the dew glistening in the morning sunlight. Oh, Guardy, she murmured, it's so good to see you. You waited up for me, Polly? he asked. Yes, she answered. Dora was sure you wouldn't come to-night, because it was so late, and on account of it being low tide, but I was equally sure you would. Of course I would, said Captain Francis Newcombe glibly. And I'm here. We're just in. I was afraid it was hopelessly late. 
but I didn't want to disappoint you, in case you might still be clinging to what must have seemed a forlorn hope, and so I came ashore on the chance. Guardy, she said delightedly, you're the only guardy in the world. But what happened? You were to have left the mainland today, and it's only five hours across. You'll have to ask Locke, he smiled, that is, as to details, when he's in a better humor. In a general way, however, the engine broke down. We've been since one o'clock this afternoon getting over. Oh, she exclaimed, what perfectly wretched luck. And where's Mr. Locke now? And, no, first you must tell me about mother. Is she changed any? Is she well and quite, quite happy? And does she like her home? Is it pretty? And how? Good heavens, Polly expostulated Captain Francis Newcomb, with assumed helplessness. What a volley! But his mind was at work, swiftly, coldly, judicially. To preface his visit with the announcement of Mrs. Wick's untimely, or was it timely, end, would create an atmosphere that would not at all harmonize with his plans. Polly in mourning and retirement. Locke, impossible! nor did it suit him to explain that Mrs. Wicks was not her mother. He was not yet sure when that particular piece of information might best be used to advantage. And so Captain Francis Newcomb laughed disengagingly. I can't possibly answer all those questions tonight. We'd be here until daylight. The mother's quite all right, Polly, quite all right. You can pump me dry tomorrow. Oh, I'm so glad and so happy, she cried. She clapped her hands together. All right, tomorrow. We'll talk all day long. Well, then, about Mr. Locke. Where is he? And how did you come to make such a trip? You know, you just wrote that you were coming down from New York on his yacht. Who is he? Tell me about him. Locke. Damn it, the girl was incredibly beautiful. The figure of a young goddess. What hair! Those lips! Fool! What was the matter with him? Polly was only a tool to be used, not to turn his head just because she had proved to be a bit of a feminine wonder. Fool! The downfall of every outstanding figure in his profession had been traceable to a woman. It was a police axiom. It did not apply to Shadow Varn. A girl! Bah! The world was full of them. And yet... His hand at his side clenched while his lips smiled. That's something else for tomorrow, he said. You'll meet him then, and... What was it he had said to himself a little while ago, about slight obstacles in the way of the turtle-doves? I hope you'll like him, though I've an idea that perhaps you won't. Why won't I? demanded Polly instantly. Well, I don't know. Upon my word, I don't said Captain Francis Newcomb, with a quizzical grin. He certainly isn't strikingly handsome, and I've an idea he's anything but a ladies' man, though not altogether a bad sort, in spite of that, you know. Oh, said Polly Wicks, with a little pout that might have meant anything. Well, who is he, then, and where did you meet him? I met him at the club in London, and we chummed up on the way over. It's quite simple. He was off on a holiday with no choice as to where he went, whereas I wanted to come here, so we came down in his motor-cruiser. As to who he is, he's just young Howard Locke, the son of Howard Locke Sr., the American financier. Oh, said Polly Wicks again. 
What a ravishing little pout! Where had the girl learned the trick? Was it a trick? Those eyes were wonderfully frank, steady, ingenuous, wonderfully deep and self-reliant. He wondered if he looked old in those eyes. Young Locke? Fool again! Go on, tempt the gods, ask her if thirty-three fell within her own category of youth, or— Don't make a sound, she cautioned suddenly. Quick, here! He found himself, obedient to the pressure on his arm, standing back again within the shadows of the tree-arched road. "'What is it, Polly?' he asked in surprise. "'Look,' she whispered, and pointed out across the lawn. A figure was emerging from the trees some hundred yards away, and in the open now began to approach the house. Captain Francis Newcomb stared. It was a bare-headed, white-haired old man, in a dressing-gown that reached almost to his heels. The man walked quickly, but with a queer, bird-like movement of his head, which he cocked from side to side at almost every step, darting furtive glances in all directions around him. Captain Francis Newcomb felt the girl's hand tighten in a tense grip on his arm. Rather curious, this. The figure was making for that hedge of bushes that seemed to enclose the veranda from below. And now, reaching the hedge, and pausing for an instant to look around him again in every direction, the man parted the bushes and disappeared under the veranda. "'My word!' observed Captain Francis Newcomb tersely. "'What's it about? A thief in the night, or what? I'll see what the beggar's up to anyway.' He took a step forward, but Polly held him back. "'Keep quiet,' she breathed. "'It's—it's it's only Mr. Marlin.' Captain Francis Newcomb whistled low under his breath. "'As bad as that, is he?' Polly nodded her head. "'Yes,' she said a little miserably. "'I'm afraid so, though it's the first time I ever saw anything like this.' "'But what is he doing under the veranda there at this hour?' demanded Captain Francis Newcomb. Polly shook her head this time. "'I don't know,' she said. "'But I think there must be some way in and out of the house under there, for I am certain he was in bed less than an hour ago, because when Dora left me she was going to see that her father was all right for the night, and if she hadn't found him in his room, I am sure she would have been alarmed and would have come back to me. I—I I saw him come out of there a little while ago.' I was sitting on the veranda waiting for you. I started to follow him across the lawn, and then I thought I had no right to do so, and then I saw you, and—and and I forgot all about him." Captain Francis Newcomb was a master of facial expression. He became instantly grave and concerned. "'Well, I should say, then,' he stated thoughtfully, that, from what I've just seen, and from what you wrote in your letter about the fabulous sum of money he keeps about him, he ought to have a good deal of medical attention, and the money taken from him, and put in some safe place. Don't you know Miss Marlin well enough to suggest something like that?" Polly Wicks shook her head quickly. "'Oh, you don't understand, Guardy,' she said anxiously. He has had medical attention. The very best specialist from New York has been here since I wrote you, 
and he says there is really absolutely nothing that can be done. Mr. Marlin is just the dearest old man you ever knew. It's just on that one subject, not so much money as finance, though I don't quite understand the difference, that he is insane. If he were taken away from here, and shut up anywhere, it would kill him. And, as Dr. Damer said, what better place could there be than this? And anyway, Dora wouldn't hear of it, and as for taking the money away from him, nobody knows where it is. Captain Francis Newcomb was staring at the bushes that fringed the veranda. Oh, he said quietly, that puts quite a different complexion on the matter. I didn't understand. I gathered from your letter that the money was more or less always in evidence. In fact, I think you said he showed it to you, a half million dollars in cash. So he did, Polly answered. But that's the only time I ever saw it and I don't think even Dora has ever seen it more than once or twice. He has got it hidden somewhere, of course. But as it would be the very worst thing in the world for him to get the idea into his head that anyone was watching him in an attempt to discover his secret, Dora has been very careful to show no signs of interest in it. Dr. Damer warned her particularly that any suspicions aroused in her father's mind would only accentuate the disease. Oh, Guardy, it's a terribly sad case, and insanity is such a horribly strange thing. He never seems to... Polly was still talking. Captain Francis Newcomb inclined his head from time to time in assumed interest. He was no longer listening. Polly, the beauty of the night, his immediate surroundings, were, for the moment, extraneous things. His mind was at work. Incredible luck! The problem that had troubled him, that he had never really solved, that he had, indeed, finally must be left to circumstances as he should find them here, and be then governed thereby, was now solved in a manner that far exceeded anything he could possibly have hoped for. To obtain the actual possession of the money from a fuddle-brained old idiot had never bothered him. That was a very simple matter. But to get away with the money, after the robbery had been committed, had not appeared so simple. Someone on the island must be guilty. The circle would be none too wide. He must emerge without a breath of suspicion having touched him. Not so simple. There would have been a way, of course. Wits and ingenuity would have supplied it. But that had been the really intricate part of the undertaking. And now, incredible luck! He had naturally assumed that the household knew where the old madman kept his money, naturally assumed that there would be a beastly fuss and uproar over its disappearance. But now there would be nothing of the kind. It might take a few days to solve the old fool's secret, but in the main that would be child's play. After that, if by any unfortunate chance an accident happened to Mr. Jonathan P. Marlin, the whereabouts of the money would forever remain a mystery save to one Captain Francis Newcomb. No one could, or would, be accused of having taken it. Guardy, you quite understand, don't you? ended Polly Wicks. Captain Francis Newcomb smiled at the upturned, serious face. Quite, Polly, quite, he answered earnestly. Very fully, I might say. It must be very hard indeed on Miss Marlin. I am so sorry for her. I wish there were something we might do. Your being here must have been a blessing to her. 
The color stole into Polly Wick's cheeks. "'Gardy, you're a dear,' she whispered. "'Am I?' he said, and took possession of her hand. What a soft, cool little palm it was! What an entrancing little figure! Who would have dreamed that Polly would develop into so lovely, no, not lovely, damn it, she was divine! Polly and a half-million! Why luck? Curse luck! The eyes and lips of a dream-woman, he had said. A half-million! Both his for the taking! Did he ask still more? He was not so sure about Locke having her. No, it wasn't the night drugging his senses and steeping his soul in fancy possession of desires. It was real. If it pleased him, he had only to take, to drink his fill to satiation of this goblet of the gods. There was nothing to stay him. He had built for it, and he was entitled to it. It wasn't chance. Chance. There was strange laughter in his heart. Chance was the playground of fools. Why shouldn't he laugh, aye, and boastingly? Who was to deny him what he would, this woman if he wanted her, the... He stood suddenly like a man dazed and stunned. He let fall the girl's hand. Was he mad, insane, his mind unbalanced? Was reason gone? It had come out of the night, a mocking thing, a voice that jeered and rocked with wild mirth. His eyes met Polly's. She was frightened, startled. Her face had gone a little white. Imagination? As he had imagined that night in his cabin on board ship? A voice of his own creation? No. It came again now, jarring, crashing, jangling through the stillness of the night. Shadow Varn! Shadow Varn! Ha, ha! Ha, ha! It rose and fell. Now almost a scream now hoarse with wild, untrammeled laughter. Shadow Varn! Shadow Varn! Ha, ha! Ha, ha! And then, like a long, drawn-out, eerie call, Shadow Varn! And then the soft whispering of the leaves through the trees, and no other sound. What is it? What is it? Polly cried out. What a horrible voice! Captain Francis Newcomb's hand, hidden in his pocket, held a revolver. To get rid of the girl now. The voice had come from the woods in the direction of the shore. A voice. Shadow Varn. Who called Shadow Varn here on this island, where Shadow Varn had never been heard of? He was cold as ice now, cold with a merciless fury battering at his heart. He did not know, but he would know. And then... You run along into the house, Polly. He forced a cool sang-froid into his voice. It's probably nothing more than some of the negroes you spoke of in your letter catcalling out there on the water, or else someone with a perverted sense of humor in the woods here trying to spoof us. And in that case, a lesson is needed. Quick now, Polly. It's time you were in bed anyway. And say nothing about it. There's no use raising an alarm over what probably amounts to nothing. I'll tell you all about it in the morning. She was still staring at him in a frightened, startled way. But, Gardy, she faltered, you... Damn the girl! She was wasting precious moments. But he could not explain that he had a personal interest in that cursed voice, could he? He smiled reassuringly. 
I'll tell you all about it in the morning, if there's anything to tell, he repeated. Now run along. Good night, dear. Good night, Guardy, she said hesitatingly. He watched her start toward the house. Then he swung quickly from the road into the woods. He swore savagely to himself. She had kept him too long. There was very little chance now of finding the owner of that voice. Had there ever been? What did it matter, the moment or so it had taken to get rid of Polly? The odds were all with the voice, and had been from the start. He was not only metaphorically, but literally, stabbing in the dark. What did it mean? Again he swore, and swore now through clenched teeth. He knew well enough what it meant. It meant what he knew now that shot through his cabin window had meant. It meant that he was known to someone as he should be known to no one. It meant that of two men on this island there was room for only one. Otherwise it promised disaster, exposure, the end, a strangling, horrible end at the end of a rope, a door of the past, a jar. Who? Who? He was making too much noise. Rather than stalking his game, he was more likely to be stalked. He had been stalked, when that voice had cried out. He halted, listened, nothing. But it was somewhere in here that the voice had come from. He could swear to that. He worked forward again. Damn the trees and foliage! How could one go quietly when one had to fight one's way through? And it was soggy and wet underfoot. One's feet made squeaky, oozy noises. He came out on the beach, a long, curvy stretch of sand, glistening white in the moonlight. He was amazed that he had travelled so far. How far had he travelled? His mind, like his soul, was in a state of fury, of fear. There was upon him a frenzy, the urge of self-preservation, to kill. A structure of some kind, extending out to the sea, loomed up a distance away over to the right. He stared at it. It was a boathouse, and its ornate, exaggerated size stamped it at once as an adjunct to the mad millionaire's mansion. But the voice had not come from the boathouse. It had come from the woods back in here behind him. Captain Francis Newcomb retraced his steps into the woods again, but now with far greater caution than before. And presently, his revolver in his hand, he sat down upon the stump of a tree. He held his hand up close before his eyes. It was steady, without sign of tremor. That was better. He was cooler now. No, cool, not cooler, quite himself. If he could not move here in the woods without making a noise, neither could anyone else. And from the moment that voice had flung its threat and jeer through the night, there had been no sound in the underbrush. He had listened, straining his ears for that very thing, even while he had maneuvered to get Polly out of the road without arousing suspicion anent himself in her mind. He was listening now. It was the only chance. True, whoever it was might have been close to the beach, or close to the road, and had already escaped, and in that case he was done in. But on the other hand, the man, if it were a man and not a devil, might very well have done what he, Captain Francis Newcomb, was doing now, remained silent and motionless, secure in the darkness. If that were so, then, sooner or later, the other must make a move. Silly? 
Impossible? A preposterous theory? Perhaps. But there was no alternative hope of catching the other tonight. Why hadn't he adopted this plan from the start? How sure was he, after all, that, covered by the noise he himself had made, the other had not got away? The minutes passed. Five. Ten of them. There was no sound. The silence itself became heavy. It began to palpitate. It grew even clamorous, thundering ghastly auguries, threats and jibes in his ears. And then it began to take up a horrible sing-song refrain. Who was it? Who was it? Who was it? What would tomorrow bring? Shadow Varn. It was literally a death sentence, wasn't it? Unless he could close forever those bawling lips. He felt the grey come creeping into his face. He, who laughed at fear, who had laughed at it all his life, save through that one night on board the ship, was beginning to fight over again his battle for composure. Shadow Varn! Shadow Varn! Hell itself seemed striving to shake his nerve. Well, neither hell nor anything else could do it. There were those who had learned that to their cost. And it seemed there was another now who was yet to learn it. His teeth clamped suddenly together in a vicious snap, and suddenly he was on his feet. Faintly there came the rustle of foliage. It came again. He could not place its direction at first. It might be an animal. No. The rustling ceased. Someone was running now on the road in the direction of the dock, but a long way off. He lunged and tore his way through trees and undergrowth, and broke into the clear of the road. He raced madly along. He could see nothing ahead because of those infernal moon-flecked turnings that he had been fool enough to rave over on his way to the house. Nothing. He drew up for a second and listened. Nothing. He spurted on again. A game of blind man's bluff. And he was blindfolded. He came out into the clearing with the dock in sight. Again he stopped and listened. Still nothing. His lips tightened. It was futile. He would only be playing the fool to grope further around in the darkness in what now could be but the most aimless fashion, robbed even of a single possible objective. He could not search the island. There was nothing left to do but go on board. He started out on the dock. And then suddenly, as his eyes narrowed, his stride became nonchalant, debonair. He fell to whistling softly, a catchy air from a recent musical comedy. Runnels had not gone to bed. Runnels was stretched out on his back on the deck of the yacht, smoking a pipe, his head propped up on a coil of rope. Captain Francis Newcomb dropped lightly from the wharf to the deck. "'Hello, Runnels,' he observed as he halted in front of the other. The artistry of the night got you, too? Well, I must say, it's too fine to waste all of it, at any rate, in sleep. You're bloody well right it is, said Runnels. Strike me pink if it ain't. I've heard of these here places from the time I was born, but I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't laid here smoking my pipe and saying to myself, This here's you, Runnels, and that there's it. London, I can do without London for a bit. Quite so, said Captain Francis Newcomb. He leaned over and ran his fingers along the sole of Runnels' upturned boot. Runnels sat up with a jerk. What the hell are you doing? he ejaculated. 
"'Striking a match,' said Captain Francis Newcomb, as he lighted a cigarette. "'You don't mind, do you? It saves the deck.' Runnels, with a grunt, returned his head to the comfort of the coiled rope. "'Lock turned in?' inquired Captain Francis Newcomb, casually. "'About ten minutes after you left,' said Runnels. "'That engine did him down, if you ask me. I mixed him a peg, and he was off like a shot.' "'Well, I don't know of anything better to do myself,' said Captain Francis Newcomb. He turned and walked slowly toward the cabin companionway, but aft by the rail he paused for a moment, and, flinging his cigarette overboard, watched it as it struck the water, and listened as it made a tiny hiss, like a serpent's hiss. His face for an instant became distorted, then set in hard, deep lines. "'Who was it?' The sole of Runnell's boot was dry, quite dry. End of Book Two, Chapter Two.